All right, so as you are uh, living life, a lot of times we look at certain people and we look at their life and we desire all of it or at least parts of it. I don't know who you look to, maybe certain influencers and even if you don't think of them that way, you, you follow people in the various hobbies that you have. It might be a fashion and you look at them and it might be food and you look at them. It might be kind of home stuff, maybe Chip and Joanna Gaines. I know they have like a whole cult following. Maybe it's some of them and you're like, oh yes. And well, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's people that are in your life, not just people on Instagram, people that you look at and go, yeah, I want, I want kind of what they have in some way. Maybe it's friends and uh, co-workers and you see certain aspects of their life and you desire what they have. And all of us are building our life. All of us are actively building, growing, trying to add to our life in various ways. It might be financially you're trying to grow and build your life and your career. You might be trying to build your life. It might be relationally, even as you build your family, you're seeking to build your life. It may be personally that you are seeking to build your life and grow with education or with counseling or therapy or other things where you are just even church and spirituality that you are trying to build your life into becoming a certain way. We're all seeking to build our life. There's people that we follow. There's people that we see and kind of want what they have, or just independently, we're seeking to build our life. And we are told to do that. We're told, go for it. We're told that we can do that. We're told we have the ability to do that, that we have the power to do that. We're encouraged to actively seek to build our lives, to follow our dreams, our passions, our goals, and to manifest or to build the life that we are desiring. And I am always fascinated. It doesn't mean I like it or rejoice over it, but I'm always fascinated by the stories of people that sought to build their life and they got it and then lost it. Or they got it and then it was not as fulfilling as they thought it was going to be. I love, there's a quote from Jim Carrey, the comedian, and he says, I wish everyone would get rich. That way they would see it doesn't fulfill. And that's coming from somebody who made a lot of money and was very successful. Or there's stories of people that had it all and then lost it. People like Anthony uh, Bourdain, I don't know if you know him, He's a, he, was a, he committed suicide, but was a food, travel show, blogger, it seemed like his life was what we would all want, like just get paid to travel the world and eat great food and talk to awesome people, and his life tragically ended. And there's people like uh, Rachel Hollis, who was very popular a handful of years ago. Maybe some of you ladies especially read her books. It was targeted towards uh, women and saying, don't, girl, don't apologize, and girl, wash your face, or all, all this kind of self-esteem. Those are the titles of her books. Uh, this kind of self-esteem. And then she was also very popular doing kind of marriage coaching. And then just shortly after that, got divorced. And so I'm, I'm not saying I rejoice in those things, but I'm fascinated by the stories of people that had it all and then either say, it's not as fulfilling as you would think, or they lose it. They had it all and then lost it. And the story that we're going to look at today is really about that. It's Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, the, the kingdom that was the biggest uh, empire at its time that overtook many other countries. It overtook Israel and brought them into captivity. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's story. He gives us a testimony story of having had it all and then losing it. And then eventually it being restored to him. 
And take away, if you're a Christian, let's just think about Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. Take away, take away all the idolatry and all the kind of pagan stuff, all the bad stuff. You look at Nebuchadnezzar's life, and it's really what a lot of us want. He is successful in his career. His parents would be proud. His teachers would be proud. He's very successful. He's followed his passions. He's built something. He's got a nice big fireplace. He's kind of got everything that we would that we would want. He's kind of got everything that we would aspire to. He is at the pinnacle of his success. And yet, he lost it all. And his testimony that he is going to give us today will help us beware of the dangers that can lead as we are seeking to build our lives. Most of us knowing we'll never get to empire Nebuchadnezzar status, but as we are seeking to build our lives, the same dangers that led to him losing it all are the same dangers that are present in our life. And the same thing that can lead us back is what led him back. And so we get to learn from his story today. And here's the reason we're talking about this. We're talking about being faithful. We're talking about being faithful in a world, in a city, in a culture that isn't Christian that doesn't say, yeah, we love God and we live our lives following God. That's not the world we live in. And that's mainly been true for the history of God's people forever. And so how do we be faithful? And there's a lot of things that are hard to be faithful. There's a lot of reasons why it's hard to be faithful. Some of the things that we have talked about, whether it's fear and the need for courage or cultural pressure that's upon us or temptations to fit in and blend in, but there's a, a danger that's even worse than all of those things. It's all of those things are out there. Temptation, pressure, suffering, they're out there. But there's a greater danger, which is pride. The greatest danger that we can face if we are trying to be faithful is actually not out there, but inside. And it's pride. And so today we're going to look at something I'm an expert on, humility. And I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, it's something that we often ignore. We don't think about often. But it will be hard to be faithful without humility. It will be impossible to be faithful without humility. And Nebuchadnezzar gives us this testimony story of how pride ruined him, how even though he had it all, it ruined him, and how humility brought him back. So what is this passage that we look at teach us about humility. That's what we're going to look at. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a long passage. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back through it and see what it is that we need to learn about humility in order to be faithful. Here's what it says. Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, so he is writing a letter. I know we don't begin our letters with our name, but that's how they a lot of times did it back then. You can start texting like that. You can say, Tyler, to you, you know, or Caleb, to you. So he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. So this is his kind of testimony letter of what happened to him. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. 
When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told him the dream. Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. If you were here a few weeks ago, this is the second time that Daniel, at least recorded second time that Daniel has done this. So he knew I can trust Daniel to be able to help me know what the interpretation means. By the way, during this story, Daniel now, when we, it's only been four chapters, but at the beginning, Daniel was a teenager, probably 14, 15, maybe 16. Now it's forwarded only four chapters, but he's probably in his early 80s, late, late 70s. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the vision of my mind a watcher, a holy one, an angel, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. So this is his dream, this giant tree that's amazing, that's providing shelter and and food for animals and all this stuff that goes to the ends of the earth, and then it is commanded by the lumberjack angel to be cut down. It's commanded to be laid to waste. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. He knows what the dream means, and he's not sure he wants to tell the king. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals lived and its branches, the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. Here's what it all means. 
you will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time. Scholars, commentators aren't sure exactly what seven periods of time is. It doesn't explain it. Some think it's seven years, maybe seven months, seven periods of time. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the story that we get of Nebuchadnezzar, this testimony story of one that had it all, lost it all, and then experiences restoration. And it's what we need. It's put in this book of Daniel to help encourage us that while we are called to be faithful, one of the greatest enemies to that is pride. So let's explore the need for humility. First is this, why do we need Humility. It probably isn't what you thought one of your greatest needs is coming in here. Most of us, if I were to ask you, what's your greatest need right now? Or what's your, uh, what's your biggest prayer? What are you wanting from God? What do, what do you need in your life? What growth do you feel like you need in your life? Most of us probably wouldn't say humility. If you think about this week or times that you've shared with your community group or friends, a lot of our conversation isn't please pray for humility for me. That's usually not something that's on the top of our mind. And yet, we need humility 
because we are proud. And pride is our greatest danger. I love the way C.S. Lewis, author, Oxford professor, says it. He says this, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Now, if that's true, which I believe it is, then we should really pay attention. If pride is actually worse than every other vice that there is, if pride is the fountain from which every other vice flows, and if pride makes it impossible to experience love and contentment and common sense and any of those things, then we should pay attention to pride. We need humility because we are proud, and yet it's hard to see. It's one of the things that's hard to see because it's pride. So it's hard to actually say, I am proud, because inherent in pride is a blindness that thinks it is good and thinks it is fine and thinks there's nothing wrong. And yet pride is the most dangerous thing to our faithfulness. And here's what the core of pride is. Here's, what the, here's underneath all of it. Here's what pride is. It is not acknowledging God. Here's how it says it here. They say that all of these kind of judgments will come against him until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. As soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules, pride is not acknowledging who God is. It is believing something about ourselves and not believing it about God. Pride is, instead of seeing who God is, a focus on us. Pride is being satisfied in ourselves. Pride is having a self-satisfaction that looks inward, that trusts inward, that believes inward. A lot of times we call it self-confidence, self-esteem, self-reliance, self-trust. But all of that really is I count on me. I have trust in me. I have satisfaction in me. It is a trust and a satisfaction in oneself. And that can look like boasting. It can look like, I'm so great, I'm so awesome because we trust in ourselves and we're successful, like Nebuchadnezzar. But it can also look like a trust in oneself that is weak. Because we trust in ourselves, but we don't have it all together, then we have fear. We have worry and we have anxiety because I'm counting on myself, but myself is not delivering. And so it can look like boasting, but it can also look like self-pity. Because we're still looking to ourself for satisfaction, for trust, for all of those things. Here, here's what pride says. Pride says that life is for me and from me. This is how Nebuchadnezzar said it. By my vast power and for my majestic glory. He says, this all came from me, by me, and it is for me. That's what pride says. It doesn't acknowledge God. Instead, it says, life is from me and it is for me. Let's look at both of those two things, from me and for me, as we just kind of diagnose pride. 
from me. Here's the, here's the interesting thing about pride. A lot of times, it's not wrong. A lot of times, and I don't mean wrong as in it's not bad to have pride. I mean, the claims that pride makes are not bad. They're not wrong. You look at your life and you say, I did this. Nebuchadnezzar looks around and says, the angel even says to him, you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky. And your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. Daniel, the angel, they both say to Nebuchadnezzar, you are great. Your empire is huge. You've done amazing things. You are strong. Your greatness is huge. It's all over the place. So it's not wrong for Nebuchadnezzar to say, look. It's not like he's blind to his achievements. If the, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, this is not an actual photograph, but this is an art, artistic rendition, but it is the, the seven, I don't know if you've ever heard of the seven ancient wonders of the world, but the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of them. They said that the walls in some of Babylon were so big that they would do chariot races on them. Like you might be working in your backyard trying to make it nice, but I guarantee you it's not big enough to do chariot races in there. It's, it was huge. It was massive what Nebuchadnezzar had done. He had built things with his strength, his glory, his greatness. And that's true. But pride says it's from me. It misses the source of where all that came from. Just think about your life. A lot of times when we look at our life and we say, how did I get the life that I have? Think about your life and go, how did I get it? Usually we say, well, I went to school. I got a good education. Or say, you know what? I said school's stupid. I'm not like that. And I pursued a trade or I was an entrepreneur and that's how I did it. Or we say that it's my instincts. I always relied on my gut. I always relied on my instincts and I've been able to make good decisions. Or we say, it's hard work. No one ever gave me anything. I've worked hard for everything I have. It's my talents. It's my abilities. It's my education. It's it's my gifts and skills that I have. It's my dedication. It's my discipline. It's, it's whatever it is. We look at our life and we say, how did you get it? How did you get the family you have? How did you get the wife you have? How did you get the husband you have? How did you get the house you have? How did you get the, the uh, personality you have? Most of the time we look at it and we say, it came from me. I worked hard. I made the right calls. I, made the, I wasn't dumb like these people. I wasn't lazy like these people. I wasn't too focused on whatever this is, like these people. I made it happen. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, it came from me, but it misses the source. How do you know if this is operating in your heart? A big sign is that we are self-righteous towards other people. A big sign is that we are self-righteous towards others. We look at those that are different from us or don't have what we have achieved or what we have done, and we look down on them and say, if you would just be a little more self-controlled, if you would just be a little more disciplined, if you would just be a little more holy, if you would just read your Bible a little bit more, if you would just pray a little bit more, if you would just love a little bit more, if you would just have a little bit more grace, if you would just have done a little bit more school, if you would have just read a little bit more books, then you could be like me. We're self-righteous. Christians, we are often guilty of this. We look at those around us and have a judgmental posture and spirit. It's pride. Even if the things are true, 
even if your empire extends and your greatness extends, where did it come from? Pride says it came from me. And a big sign of that is a judgmentalism or self-righteousness. Or another sign of it is an anxiety. Because we believe it came from us, we know it could go away at any moment. And so we're fearful. What if I lose it? What if it goes away? What if I don't have it anymore? Because we believe it came from me, then we know it's fragile. Are you anxious? Do you live with fear? Do you live with worry? Are you always kind of checking your finances or checking your, just kind of monitoring your life and a little afraid? It might be but because you believe that your life came from you, and so it's fragile knowing it could go away at any time. Here's another sign that maybe this from me aspect of pride is operating. If you don't have what you think you should have, what happens? Because if we believe life is from me, I count on myself, I trust in myself, and life comes from me, and you do all the right stuff. You work hard, you go to school, you, you're disciplined, you're loving, you're kind, you treat people well, you do all the right things that you believe are supposed to happen. And yet life doesn't give you what it, it was supposed to give you. Then what happens? Are we bitter? Are we cynical? Things never work out. Are we maybe even cold towards God, believing, God, I did everything the right way, but you haven't kept up your end of the deal. When suffering comes, we don't understand because we've worked hard to do all the right things. One of the ways that we know this from me aspect is present can be in our, our self-righteousness, it can be in our fear, and it can also just be if we don't have it, the bitterness, the coldness, even the self-pity, nothing ever works out for me. I always, give it, I always give it my best. I always try and nothing just ever works out. I'm not as good as anybody else. This is actually, whether boastful or kind of weak, all pride. Saying life is from me. And then secondly, pride says life is for me. So it comes from me, but it's also for me. Again, Back to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, by my vast power, that's from me, and what's it all for? For my majestic glory. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a historical figure. Like, there's tons of documented evidence of this. Sometimes people look at the Bible and say, ah, it's just fairy tales or just fantastical stories. There's so much historical evidence of Nebuchadnezzar and even kind of the voice that we see happening in here. This is at, uh, in New York, the Met Museum. And these are bricks. Nebuchadnezzar had tons of these bricks all over the place. And this is describing the construction of the outer city wall of Babylon. Here's just some quotes that he had put on his bricks. I built a strong wall that cannot be shaken with bitumen and baked bricks. I don't know what bitumen is. I laid its foundation on the breast of the netherworld, and I built its top as high as a mountain. The fortifications of Izagila and Babylon I strengthened and established the name of my reign, the the name of my reign forever. Very similar to what we see in the book of Daniel, saying this is for me, from me. Look what I have done, and it's for my glory. That is what the voice of pride says. It says it's from me, and it's for me. Listen, look at your life. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you working 
Why are you putting time and energy and effort into certain things and money into certain things? Just try to think about your life for a moment. Why, why are you doing what you're doing? What's it truly for? Why are you trying to get better at certain things? Why are you trying to make money? Why are you trying to get a promotion? Why are you managing your schedule the way you do, managing the money the way you do? Why? What is it for? What is the reason? What are you building for? We have to ask ourselves that. And a lot of times, if we're honest, it is for me. It is to prove something to prove to our friends, to prove to our parents, to prove to ourselves that we can do it, that we do have what it takes. So a lot of times it's to prove something. A lot of times it is for our comfort. It is for me and my comfort and my enjoyment. And my Nebuchadnezzar says, I was at ease in my palace, chilling out on my bed. A lot of times that's what it's for. It's to get to that place where we can have comfort, where we can chill out in our palace. A lot of times it is for our comfort, our security, to prove something, to get respect, all sorts of things. Listen, even the good things we do, even the spiritual things we do, oftentimes are really for us. There's a great old preacher story, which I know that doesn't sound like a great story, but there's a great old preacher story uh, that I don't know who it originated from. It's been told for hundreds of years. And it goes like this. There's a, a king, and the farm, one of the farmers of his land runs up to him. King's on his horse. The farmer runs up to him, and he's, he's a carrot farmer. And he has a big carrot. And he walks up to him, and he says, King, this is the best carrot I've ever grown in my life. All of my energy, all of my time, all of my prayers have gone into this carrot. And I give it to you, my king. And he gives him this carrot, and the king says, Wow, thank you. What a good and faithful farmer. I'm going to give you fields and fields and acres and acres to farm as a gift to you. Thank you. Now, listening close by is another guy. Always another guy, right? And he's listening. And he sees that and goes, wow, if that's what you can get for a carrot, hmm, watch this. The next day he goes up to the king and he sees the king and says, king, here is this majestic horse, a whole horse, not a stupid carrot. I mean, who likes carrots? A whole horse. It says, King, I'm going to give to you my best horse that I have ever had. And he gives to him the horse, and the king says, thanks. And kind of starts to go away. And the guy goes, kind of freaking out, and the king sees it and goes, I see. You saw me give all the acres and all the fields to the farmer. He says, yeah. He says, but here's the difference. He gave the carrot to me. You gave the horse to yourself. That's the punchline. Now, I've always loved that story. I, don't, I only have like two pastor stories that I like because most of them are really cheesy. I think that one's powerful because what it says is even the good things often that we do for God or give to God, why are we doing it? And a lot of times we're giving it to God, but we're really giving it to ourselves. And so pride says this. Pride, first of all, says it's from me. And then pride also says, it's for me. And that is true in so many ways. When you look at your life and go, why am I doing what I'm doing? We have to ask that question. Why am I giving 
the carrot? Why am I giving the horse? Why am I working hard? Why am I spending time? Why am I making money? Why am I doing this? What is it for? We have to ask ourselves that question. Pride says, it's for me. Now, there's a lot of ways that you could find out how, how you can know if this is true in your life. I'll give you a couple. One of the ways that you can know if this is true is that you need to be noticed. You need to have people acknowledge the things that you do. You need to have people see what you do and thank you for what you do and appreciate you for what you do. We need to be seen because that's part of why we're doing it. And if we do something and, the, and it's not visible, it's not acknowledged, then we get really hurt. We get really offended. And then we move back into the self-righteous. Well, why aren't they like this? Why aren't they thankful? Why aren't they? I'm not saying it's bad. It, we should be thankful. We should be appreciative. We should be encouraging. But that is one of the ways that you know that this is happening in your heart, is that you need to be noticed. Or you can know that it's for you if what happens when you fail? What happens when you work all these things and it doesn't work out? Well, if it was really for God or it was to love other people, or it was to serve other people, it was, if that was what it was for, then we would be okay. We would say, man, I tried and I wanted to honor God and I wanted to love these people and it didn't quite work out, but that's okay. I still did try to love God. I still did try to love people. And if that's what it was for, you actually have that. But if it was for you, to be respected, to get comfort, to get security, to get admiration, what, to prove it to yourself, and it doesn't work out, then we more so feel the sting of failure. There's a lot of different ways. I'll move on from that. But here's why we need humility. First of all, we need it because pride lurks within all of us, and it's deadly and dangerous. And the reason that God is so concerned about pride isn't just because it's awful and bad. The reason that we need humility, this is underneath all of this. The reason that God wants you to have humility, and I love this, this is, this is great. The reason that we need humility isn't just because pride is bad. The reason that we need humility is God is trying to give us something better. God is trying to give us reality. Because when we live in pride, we're not actually living in reality. When we live with this is from me and for me, we're not actually living in reality. It's an illusion that we're buying into. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it again. He says, we must not think that pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it or that humility is something he demands as due to his own dignity as if God himself was proud. He wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. And he and you, are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble, delightfully humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are. Uh, he's British. He can say those things. Maybe today we would cancel him, but you know, back then he could say that. <clears throat> Here's how Nebuchadnezzar said it. He said, he came to this moment where he saw, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, glorify the king of heavens because all his works are true. His ways are just. He came to know God. That's what humility did for him. That's why God wants us to be 
humble. That's why we need humility. Because we are proud and because humility brings us to a place where we actually live in reality knowing him. God wants you to be humble because when you are humble, you get to know him. You get to, instead of being satisfied in yourself, be satisfied in him. Instead of trusting yourself, begin to live life trusting him. Instead of believing and thinking and living as if it's just me, which might feel good in a moment, but is actually crushing, we get to live in a place where we say, there's God. It isn't just me. This is why we need humility. Now, that might sound great, but how do we get it? There is pride in each one of us. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to point that out. He wants to help us see it's in him, it's in us. But how do we get it? You know, the Bible says that God opposes the proud. That's a scary sentence because pride is in all of us. So we need humility. How do we get it? How does it happen? There's at least three things we can see in this story. The first is that we need to listen. Daniel comes to him and says, this is the interpretation. This is the decree. May my advice seem good to you. He is speaking to him. He is telling him. He is calling him. This is before the event of Nebuchadnezzar kind of going crazy happens. He is calling to him and speaking to him and warning him and bringing conviction into his life. Speaking. If you and I want to be humble, we have to listen to God. We have to listen to him. Maybe it's not a dream like happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you don't call all your seers and magicians to you. Maybe it's not like that. But God will speak to you. God will convict you. It might be happening right now. God wants to bring his voice into your life. It may happen at community group or in life transformation group. It may happen in a conversation. But God wants to speak to you. And he does speak. And he calls. And he warns. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes there's a Sunday or a sermon or community group conversation and you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you, bringing truth into your life like Nebuchadnezzar would have felt here. And then we just kind of go, oh, okay, and then kind of move on. Go back to our day. I don't know what you have planned after this, but you leave here and you, okay, got to watch the game, got to do the laundry, got to get ready for school on Monday, and we just kind of live our life and forget. God speaks to us. Sometimes we push it away. Sometimes we ignore it. We might say, that's not really for me, but someone else really, they should listen to this sermon on humility. It can be all sorts of different things that we kind of push away. But let me, let me ask you, look, you know, okay? Have you been spoken to by God and ignored it? Have you been warned? Have you been warned by God, challenged by God? in a sermon, by a friend, but have you heard his voice and ignored it? God wants to lead you. God loves you. Ne look, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden, whoa, my hair's long and I want to eat grass. That didn't happen. He was warned. And it was a year later that this happened. It was a year later that he went crazy. It was a year later. God wants to help you. God loves you. God speaks to you. God's any conviction that God ever gives to you isn't just to make you feel bad, but it's because he loves you and is speaking to you and calling you. 
So first thing of how we get humility is we have to listen. Second way we get humility is, and this is not the one that we like, but is discipline. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. All the, all the judgments against him. That he will go crazy, that he will be like a wild animal for seven periods of time. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. God brings discipline into our life. God is really patient. Nebuchadnezzar has seen all sorts of God showing up in the stories that we've looked at already. He has seen God show up so many times. He saw God show up in that Daniel and his friends only, they rejected his uh, meat and wine. They only ate vegetables and yet they were the strongest in the kingdom. Then he has a crazy dream and says, if you can't tell me the dream and interpret it, I'm going to kill you all. And Daniel's able to do it. He sees God show up. Then there's the fiery furnace and he's going to throw the, he throws the people in the fiery furnace and God delivers them. So God has shown up multiple times in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And even here, God shows up and warns him. I mean, you think that people around you are slow to get it. God, he's had another dream. God shows up, says, I, here's, and lays out exactly what he's going to do to him. I'm going to do this. It's, it's very interesting. And a year goes by. And then he's walking on his walls. Man, am I not awesome. Now, my backyard is kind of lame, so I never walk out in my backyard and say that, but maybe some of you have said that. You look at your house, you look at your stuff, and you go, man, I'm pretty sweet. I've done some awesome stuff. And at that moment, God's, God brings his judgment upon him. God is so patient. God is so, the Bible says that God is slow to anger. But don't excuse that, that God will not bring his justice. God is patient, God is slow to anger, but he does bring his justice. We have a God of justice. This world is filled with so much brokenness, so much pain, and so often it looks like they're getting away with it. It looks like these people are getting away with it, and Putin's getting away with it, and these people are getting, just, it looks, you know, the people in your life that have backstabbed you and been me, it looks like people are getting away with it. Sometimes that's true on this earth, but ultimately God will bring his justice. And that is true either in this life or in the life to come. And for Christians, God's justice has happened on the cross. But God will still discipline us because he's a good father that loves his children, the Bible says. So God will still correct us. God will still bring his discipline into our life because he loves us. Sadly, often it takes discipline in order for us to get humility. Nebuchadnezzar has had suffering. He's had evangelism, people kind of telling him about Jesus. He's had miracles happen around him, but none of those changed him. It took discipline in order for him to actually change. You know this, if you have kids, you parents, that we want to just teach our kids and tell them here's right, here's wrong, but a lot of times it takes discipline in order for things to actually change. When I was a kid, we might be bad, we might do this, do that, but if you said, we're taking away Nintendo, and that, I am sorry, forgive me, my Lord. I will do whatever you say, you know. It took discipline in order to bring change. This is true in our lives, right? Sadly so. That if we want to be humble, we have to listen. But a lot of times, it also takes God's discipline. 
Don't, let me tell you this. Don't think that God, don't think that because God is patient, it means he's forgotten. Don't think that because God is patient and slow with you, that it means he's forgotten what he's warned you in. I'm not saying that you need to look at every kind of bad thing in your life and try to guess, ooh, is that God's discipline? Is that God's discipline? But oftentimes there's direct connections. God has warned us about things in the way that we use substances, and it results in sickness. God's warned us about things in our marriages, and it results in brokenness. God's warned us about things in all sorts of things. God warns us about our pride, and it leads to humbling. There's all sorts of things that will happen. I've seen, I have seen God bring his judgment into many people's lives. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it happens on the spot. I'll tell you, one time I was at church, not our church. I was at church, and a guy stood up in like a member's meeting and told the pastor, you're as dumb as an ox. That's never happened at one of our member's meetings, at least out loud. I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, the guy died that night. So don't call me a dumb ox. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. But that, I mean, I'm, joking, I'm not joking about the story. That's a true story. But my point is that God, God's not going to be mocked. When God warns us, when God speaks to us, he loves us. And he will bring his judgment, sometimes in dramatic ways, sometimes in things that we just attribute to natural causes. Oh, this just kind of happened. But it's related to the things that God told us. Don't go that direction. Don't go that way. So in some ways, I'm pleading with you. In some ways, I'm pleading with you because I don't want you to end up like Nebuchadnezzar, where you've heard God's warning and just think, well, nothing's happened. It's fine. Sometimes the only way that we experience humility is God's discipline. And so let me just even say this. Maybe you are experiencing God's discipline right now. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're experiencing some things that are connected to things you were warned about a, a long time ago or recently, and you're experiencing some of the causes and the discipline that result. How are you responding to that? Because sometimes even when we're disciplined, we just kind of keep going. But what God wants to do is take every trial, every suffering, every natural cause in your life, and he wants us to bring that to him and say, okay, God, use this to refine me. Use this to change me. Use this to lead me back to you. Sometimes we don't know, is this directly connected to this? Maybe, but here's what you can always do. You can always take any suffering, any trial, any problem in your life and say, God, use this to change me and refine me and lead me back to you. We can always do that. Are you letting it purify you? It takes discipline. And then the final way we get humility is it takes worship. Here's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. It's very simple. He says, at the end of those days, I looked up to heaven. I looked up to heaven. I praised the Most High honored and glorified him. So what gets him out of this case, what gets him out of this, this mental illness, God's judgment, I'm not saying that those are always connected, but what gets him out of this place is worship. It is he looks up. It's not just he realizes how bad he is. Sometimes that's what we think humility is. Just realize how bad you are. That's part of it. It is a right assessment of yourself. But it isn't just that. It's he looks up and sees who God is. He acknowledges who God is. That's what the warning was. That's what the call was all along, was you have to acknowledge who God is. 
and he looks up. And in that moment, his sanity returns and everything has changed. In the moment that we worship God, it's not just how bad we are, but seeing how great he is. Do you see him? Do you see that everything is from him and for him? Do you see the goodness of who he is? Do you acknowledge that you need him? Do you acknowledge that life isn't about you, but it's about him? Do you acknowledge that he can be trusted? Do you acknowledge that he is the truly great one, not yourself? Do you acknowledge that all life, that every breath that you have is from him? Do you acknowledge him? In that moment, Nebuchadnezzar looks up and sees who God is. He worships. He finally sees clearly. And it brings about a humility and a change. Now, listen, I think this is so important too because I already mentioned this, but Nebuchadnezzar had, Nebuchadnezzar had so much stuff around him, but it wasn't the same as worship. He had supernatural experiences before. I kind of gave you his history. He had these supernatural experiences. He had God's people around him speaking to him and talking to him and warning him, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He had these people kind of speaking to him. He had even repented a few different times where he had said, wow, this is so crazy. Daniel's God is the great God. But he hadn't really changed. He had experienced God's blessing. He had experienced voices speaking to him, calling him. He had experienced the supernatural. But we can have, listen, you can have all of that. And it doesn't mean that you have actually worshiped God and seen who he is. And we need a humility that comes from seeing him saying, here's who you are, here's what life is. You are the great and glorious one. Now, last question I want to look at is, what are the results? What happens as he is humbled? What does it lead to? And the first thing is that it leads to God's grace. I said before, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's one of the verses in the Bible that I always find scary, and encouraging. Because it's not that God gives grace to the people that pull it all together. It's not that God gives grace to the good. It's that God gives grace to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar, in that moment, with long, giant fingernails and hair that's grown out and eaten grass like a cow, looks up and he is humbled. But he's still a freak. And it's not like he changed everything. And then a year later, God said, all right, you've done your penance. God gives grace to the humble. See, Christianity isn't a religion that is for the good people. It's for the people that know they're not good. It's not a religion for the best people. It's a religion for the people that are humble, that say, I know I need help. God gives, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He said his, in this moment, his sanity returned to him and even he was reestablished and even more greatness came to him. Well, that might not always happen, but it shows that God gives mercy. It's not that all of this happened and then God said, now you got to pay it off. You had seven years of being crazy and being proud. Now you need seven years of doing good deeds. God is gracious. One of the results of humility is that God gives his grace. God loves to give mercy when we see we're in need. God loves to give mercy when we see, I need your help. God loves to give mercy. God doesn't hold back his mercy. When we are humble and say, God, I need you, when we look up 
God never says, yeah, you need me. Better pull it together. God never does that. When we are humble in the moment of desperation, in the moment of need, in the moment of, listen, on your worst day when you acknowledge your sin, God doesn't say, yeah, so figure it out and then let's talk. God loves to give mercy and grace. That is who God is. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve anything that God gives to him. He's burned people alive. He's set up idols. He's rejected every warning he's gotten. He doesn't deserve anything except for punishment. God gives him grace. God wants to give you mercy. If God's disciplining you right now, or God has warned you about things in your life, or God has spoken to you, or convicted you, or called you, or you've got secret sin that you believe will be buried forever, or you've got patterns of life that God has warned you about, so often we are looking down, still ignoring his voice, looking down, working hard to just, I'll figure it out, I'll manage it eventually, looking down, feeling shame, feeling guilt, just looking down, and God says, I want to give you mercy. I see the way you're handling your marriage. I see the way you're handling your money. I see the way you're handling your time. I see the way your emotions are out of whack. I see the way your relationships are out of whack. I see the apathy and the coldness about the problems in this world. I see all of it, and I want you to look up and see me, and I'll give you mercy. God isn't waiting to hurt you, but he is waiting for you to look up and he wants to give you mercy. He wants to give you grace. He wants to give you help. He wants to bring change into your life. There is no sin too big. That's what Nebuchadnezzar teaches us. There's no life that's gone rejecting God's warnings for decade after decade after decade that God can't bring mercy into. He wants to do that. He forgives. He gives his mercy by forgiving. He gives his mercy by helping. He gives his mercy by changing. That's the first thing that happens. That's the first result of humility. And then also it results in love. See, because when we receive God's mercy, it doesn't stay there. When we receive God's goodness, it doesn't stay there. We want to help other people experience it as well. Look, look what happens at the beginning of his letter as he's writing to people. He says, may your prosperity increase. So there's this way different posture that he now has that isn't about, look where he was before, that isn't about, Daniel tells him to turn away from his injustice by showing mercy to the needy. So before he's unjust, he is using other people. And now he has this posture that says, I hope you and your prosperity increase. I want you to be blessed. I want you to have abundance because he's experienced that from God. It moves us out. Pride is self-focused. Humility isn't, I'm so dumb, I'm so bad. Humility is, I'm now focused on serving you. I'm focused on loving you because I know who God is and I know what he's done for me and so I'm focused on loving and serving you. It moves us out. 
Oftentimes, one of the biggest signs that we have experienced God's grace and love in our life or that we are humble is that we become a generous people. And I'm talking money, I'm talking time, I'm talking our gifts, that we become generous. We want to no longer do injustice, but we want to love and serve and do good and to, and to pour ourselves out for others because we see that God's done it for us. So it's love, and then finally, it is to testify. One of the results of humility is simply, he says, to those of every people, nation, language, I am pleased to tell you. See, when God does something in your life amazing, you don't want to keep it in. When you've experienced God's goodness, you don't just say, wow, this is really good. This is true with everything in your life. If you watch a good movie, you tell other people about it. If you see cool fall colors, you take a picture and you put yourself in it and go, look at these fall colors and me, and you send it to your friends, right? If you, whatever it is, we always, whatever we've experienced that's good, we want others to experience it. We testify about it. This is what Nebuchadnezzar does. This is part of the results of humility, that when you look at your, what would happen if you looked at your life and knew everything was grace, everything was a gift? We want to speak about it. We want other people to know it. This is what Nebuchadnezzar found. It's what he experienced, and he wanted other people to know it. Now listen, this isn't a whole sermon on evangelism or telling people the good news about Jesus, but uh, we do have a bunch of books that I want to give you that are free that are on that table on evangelism. A guy just gave me a giant box. He was like, hey, I can't take... Oh, we were at a conference, and he was like, I can't take all these boxes home. You want all these books on evangelism? And it would be really satanic if I was like, no. <clears throat> I don't want anyone to know about Jesus. Take your box and shove it, you know? So I, of course I said yes, and it, it was connected to this. So uh, I would love you to take one of those books on the way out, and it will help us to be able to testify of the good that God has done for us in, in your life. So we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful in exile, and there's no way to be faithful if pride lives in us. It's the great sin that leads to all other sins. It's the great spiritual cancer that eats up contentment and joy and love. There's no way to be faithful with pride in our lives. We need humility. We need it. I don't want pride to get in the way of what God wants to do in your life. I don't want pride to get in the way of what God wants to do in my life. And so we need the humility that he brings we're going to take communion in just a moment. If you didn't grab a cup on the way in, communion is a time that Christians remember what Jesus has done for us. And that phrase that I told you that the Bible says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, is really shown to us in the most ultimate way in Jesus. God opposes the proud. Jesus had to die on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for our pride, not for his pride. God ultimately opposed our pride on the cross. We each should die for our pride. And Jesus died instead. And then God gives grace to the humble because of what Jesus has done. The only truly, perfectly humble person there was died a proud man's death. But because of what he did, if we receive him, if we come to him, we're able to rest in the gift of humility that he bought for us, where we can get to experience God's grace through what he has done for us. We get to experience and live life as if we were humble.
because Jesus' record of humility goes to us. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And on the cross, those two things come together. Our pride is dealt with. If you feel convicted, if you feel pride, Jesus died for it. You don't have to be made into an animal. God gives you a new nature. You don't have to be undone like Nebuchadnezzar was. God rebirths you. He gives you new birth, kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. He gives you his grace. That's what we get to experience. And the more that we experience that and taste that and know that, it leads to all the things we just talked about. It leads to worship. It leads to testimony. It leads to love and generosity. It leads to basking in his goodness and knowing who he is. So as you take communion, I want to just encourage you to pray. Confess where there's pride, where you say it's for me and from me. Confess and take time to look up, to see God, to see who he is, to see what he's done for you, to thank him. And then we'll sing a few songs in response. And listen to me. If God has spoken to you, whether today or other times, heed his warning. Listen to him because he loves you. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything going on in their life. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you speak to us, that you give us your grace, that we don't have to die in our pride, that you died for us. Thank you that you are the truly humble, truly merciful king. Lord, help us to see where there's pride. And Lord, help us to see you and worship you and acknowledge you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.